Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry this morning for this heavenly food, that it may nourish our souls today in the ways of eternal life, through Jesus Christ, the true bread of heaven. Amen. Well, the Christmas season is a strange season. It's here, by the way, in case you haven't noticed, in case you're one of those people that just waits till the last possible moment uh, to begin decorating and things like that, it's here. Um, it's, it's my favorite time of year. There's so many things to see, right? The lights, the decorations, the candles, the ornaments, the parades. There's so many things to drink and eat, the hot chocolate, hot cider, eggnog, turkey, Christmas ham, cookies, Right? It's wonderful. It's magical. But all this stuff, the drinks, the sights, the smells of Christmas, are simply cultural creations. They're nice traditions. They're good. They're even beautiful. But they aren't the best part of Christmas. They don't even get really at the heart of what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. And that is why Christmas is so strange to me. Because Christmas is an explicitly Christian holiday. And yet believers and unbelievers alike join together to celebrate. Christmas is all about Jesus. Christmas is about the birth of Christ, as Landon so wonderfully prayed this morning. It's about celebrating the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And yet our secular culture loves it. They celebrate with us. They even sing songs that are explicitly about God becoming a man. People who don't believe in Jesus, celebrating Jesus. It's a strange world we live in, but I'll take it. What better time to start up conversations about Jesus than Christmas? His name is even in the title. But not everyone likes Christmas. And I don't really buy into the whole war on Christmas idea But there are certainly people out there who do their best to avoid any of the Jesus parts of Christmas, which is, again, incredibly ironic. They want all of the cultural part, the fun, the wintry stuff, without any of the religious aspect. But why, I would ask, what is so offensive about the birth of Christ? Well, think about it for a second. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Savior. Well, what is so offensive about that? Why might unbelievers be taken aback at the idea of a Savior? Why would some people try to avoid it? Well, it's simple. To say that there is a Savior is to admit that you need saving. You need to be saved from something. It's to admit that there is a problem. It's to admit that you are guilty. It's to admit that you have committed sin, transgressions against Almighty God, and that something must be done. 
about these sins. To say, is there, to say there's a Savior is to say that there's sin. And to say that there's sin implies that God holds us accountable for our actions. And to say that God holds us accountable for our actions is to say that we stand condemned in and of ourselves. That's the problem. That's why a secular culture doesn't like the birth of Jesus Christ. Because it admits of the guiltiness of sin. And that is where we must start this morning. This morning, we're going to start our, this is our first sermon in our Advent series called The Promises of Christmas. And we're going to be looking at the promise of a Savior. Now, to understand the promise of salvation and the promised Savior, first, we need to understand what we need saving from. Why do we need a Savior? Why do we need salvation? And so that's the first thing we're going to look at this morning. The first thing we're going to look at is the problem. And the problem is simply this. We have an enemy outside us and within us. An enemy outside us and within us. There is someone seeking to destroy us and we are seeking to destroy ourselves. Enemies outside and within. Now this is a major problem and it has been since almost the very beginning of the world. You see, we know that God created the heavens and the earth, and after he had fashioned the earth exactly to his liking, he called it very good. He populated it with sea creatures and land animals and birds. And in the midst of the earth, when it was formed, God planted a beautiful garden. The book of Genesis chapter 1 tells us that there were lush rivers flowing through it. There were plentiful gemstones. It was paradise. A garden perfectly fashioned by God himself. Imagine what that must have looked like. But that wasn't enough. God wasn't done yet. God decided to create humankind. And so he created the man and called him Adam. Now let's turn here and let's take a look. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Turn there with me, please, if you have your Bible. If not, it will be on your screen. But again, I would encourage you to bring your Bible. See it for yourself. In Genesis Genesis chapter 2.15, it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God says, Okay, Adam, the place is yours. Work it and keep it. Enjoy it. Eat of any tree of the whole place except one. And he tells him why. Why can't Adam eat from it? Because God's mean? No. God says this. Why? If you eat from this tree, it will kill you. You will surely die. Don't eat this tree. This is paradise. This is abundance. But God wasn't even finished yet. See, God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. So he created the woman. And Adam called her Eve. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 says this. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here we see the first marriage. Everything is great. The first two humans, they're in paradise. It's abundant. 
It's beautiful. They have everything they need. Everything is set up to just be perfect and victorious. Which is why the next verse is so jarring. Look at this next verse in, in, in chapter 3. And imagine, now sometimes these things don't catch us with much surprise because we've read them so many times. But imagine reading this for the first time, how jarring this next verse must be. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice that that is not what God said. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what is this? God and mankind have an enemy, the serpent. And he blatantly lies and deceives the woman. He distorts and twists God's words He tempts her, and he's seeking to destroy her and Adam, to taint them with sin. The thing that God said, don't do this, this will kill you. The serpent says, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you even better than you are now. He wants to taint them with sin. He wants to ruin them. He wants to ruin God's plans. And so Satan tells Eve, follow me and you can be like God. You can decide what is good and evil. He's seeking to ruin paradise. Look at, chap- look at chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, Eve reaches out her hand. She takes the fruit, and she takes that first bite. And then she gives some to Adam, and he eats. And with one simple act, humanity is plunged into sin and ruin. Mankind's nature is corrupted, and death enters the world through this transgression for the first time. Because of sin, mankind is eventually thrown out of paradise and thrown out of the presence of God. Look at verse 22 in chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Paradise is lost. And notice what the text says. It says something that sounds kind of strange to our ears. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's kind of strange. Yahweh places cherubim, 
which when you go through scripture, what that, what that is, it's, a, it's a, one of Yahweh's personal throne guardian angels to guard the way back to Eden, to the tree of life. He specifically says they must not eat of the tree of life lest they eat and live forever in their sinful state. What this means is that the way is shut. There is no going back. The chasm between man and God has been opened and it cannot be crossed over. Barring an act of God, no man can make his way back into the presence of God and live. No one can go back to Eden nor to the tree of life. Death is now man's state. Theologian Gerhardus von Rad, which is the coolest name ever. Germans have the coolest names, at least like 19th century Germans. Um, he put it this way, and I think he captures the, the tragic nature of this. He says this, Paradise is irreparably lost. What is left for man is a life of trouble in the shadow of a crushing riddle. A life entangled in an unbounded and completely hopeless struggle with the power of evil. And in the end, unavoidably subject to the majesty of death. That is the state of mankind after the fall. It's that bad. And this is the legacy that we inherit as humans. A legacy of death and sin. The external enemy, Satan, had set the trap. And Adam and Eve had taken the bait. Sin has now infected their relationship to God and one another. Physical death has now entered the world. Spiritual death has now entered the world. The way to God is shut because of sin. All of humanity now fears God and tries to hide from him. Like Adam and Eve, we try to cover and hide our sin from him. But it's useless because he sees all. And so those are the two enemies, and that is the problem. Satan attacks from without, and our own desires tempt us from within. And we fall for it because our nature has been corrupted. Every part of our being has been infected with sin. And don't for one second think that this whole deal with Satan is somehow a myth or not real, or, no, or that he's no longer active in our world. No, Scripture shows us this clearly, a simple word study of the name Satan will show you otherwise. The name Satan, the, the word, is a Hebrew word, which means adversary. His, his nature is that he is the adversary of God and mankind. He tempts, he lies, he destroys, he kills, he accuses. In Jesus' ministry, we see him trying to hinder the mission of Christ. He tempts Christ as he tempted Adam. He successfully hinders Paul's ministry at times. He disguises himself as an angel of light, Paul tells us. He deceives the people of the world. The whole world, in some sense, lies under his power. Peter puts it this way to believers. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you are a human being here this morning... You have an external enemy, Satan, seeking to destroy you. And an internal enemy, yourself, your own nature. This isn't a joke, it's not a myth. Humanity exists in the state it does now because of these two things. That is the problem, and that is what we need saving from. We need saving from our enemy, and we need saving from our sin, from ourselves. But, 
But within the text of Genesis 3, there is a glimmer of hope. There is hope because there is a promise. A promise of salvation. A promise of a Savior. So we've seen the problem. Now let's look to the promise. Now, before Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden, before God throws them out, he gathers them together with the serpent and they have a little conversation. It's kind of like the kids have all done something bad and the parents now gather them together to give them the consequences. The consequences are mostly the opposite of paradise. Work for the man will now be hard. Childbirth for the woman will be painful. Life in general will now be a struggle. But the harshest and most condemning words, God levels at the serpent. And ironically, it's in God's words to the serpent himself, to Satan, that we see the first glimmer of hope. And it's here that we see the very first promise of salvation. Take a look starting in Genesis chapter 3 verses 14. Here we see the words of God to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Did you see it? God announces two things here. First, God has announced the beginning of a cosmic war. That's what enmity means. Between the offspring, literally the seed of the serpent, and the offspring and the seed of the woman, there will be enmity. Enmity, hostility, hatred, animosity, opposition, malice. They will oppose each other. This is a declaration of war. But that's not all that God announces. Look at the second verse of the second half of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God switches from the from the plural offspring to the singular he. He. So amongst the offspring of the woman shall arise one man who will eventually crush the head of the serpent of Satan. Though Satan will bruise his heel. In other words, this man, whoever he might be, will defeat Satan. But Satan will in some way injure him. The war has begun. And the waiting has begun. One theologian has rightly remarked, I think, that the rest of the Bible is simply an unfolding of this promise. The rest of the Old Testament is a record of the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, this is not necessarily a physical descent, but a spiritual one. The seed of the serpent, the children of the serpent, are all those who through rebellion to God side with Satan. The seed of the woman are all those who through repentance and faith worship God. There are only two kinds of humans according to scripture. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. The people of God and those who reject God. The rest of scripture makes this very clear. And we see it as you follow the narrative. Cain was evil. Abel was righteous. It's the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Noah was righteous and the rest of the world was evil. It's the two seeds. And eventually in Genesis 12, God chooses a man named Abram and reveals to him that the he of Genesis 3.15 will come through his line. The Messiah, the Savior, will come from Abraham. Abraham. 
So humanity still waits for the Savior. All they knew at this point was that he would come from the line of Abraham. But through the prophets, God continues to reveal little bits of information about who this Savior would be, about what he would do, and what he would look like. And you can trace this throughout the Old Testament. And so look at this. We're going to look at a couple of these these prophecies, these indicators of the Messiah, of the Chosen One, of the ultimate snake crusher. Try to sense the anticipation. Now in Genesis 17, we, we find out that it's the seed of Isaac. So we're getting a little more specific. In Genesis 28, God reveals that it will not only be the seed of Isaac, but the seed of Jacob, who is Isaac's son. So we're getting more specific. In Genesis 49, we see that he will be of the seed of Judah. In other words, this Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. In Deuteronomy 18, God reveals that he will be a prophet sent by the Father to speak his words. In Joshua 5, 14, we get this strange instance where Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's armies, whom he worships. Christ will be the captain of our salvation. In 1 Samuel 2, God reveals that he will be a faithful priest. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, God reveals that this Messiah will be a direct descendant of David. And that he will sit on an everlasting throne and will be called the Son of God. In Isaiah, we get many prophecies. But in Isaiah 7 and 9, we get that he will be born of a virgin. That he will be Emmanuel, God with us. He will be the Prince of Peace. He will rule and reign forever. In Isaiah 11, we find that he will be anointed by the Spirit, although he will come humbly. Isaiah 25 reveals that this Messiah, this Savior, this coming one, will swallow up death forever. He will also take away the tears of his people. In Isaiah 35, we read that he will have a ministry of miraculous gifts. He will heal people. He will take away the scales from their eyes, both spiritually and physically. He will make the lame walk. He will set the captives free. In Isaiah 42, it's revealed that he will be a light of salvation to the Gentiles, even. In Isaiah 45, we find that he will be the judge. And in Isaiah 53, it is revealed that he will be hated, despised by his own people. They will reject him. He will look like an ordinary man. He will be nothing to marvel at. People will think he's cursed. His death will bring peace, though, between God and God. And man, God will place the sins of his people upon his shoulders and will crush him, even though he is innocent. It even gets so specific to say that he will be buried in a rich man's tomb. Yet God will exalt this man above all others. And in Daniel, we read that he will destroy the kingdoms of men and will have dominion over all things. See, all the Old Testament is funneling towards this one individual, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the Savior. Well, who would it be? When will He come? Can you imagine the anticipation through all of their trials and all of the wars and exiles and judgments? Israel constantly cried out to God, 
How much longer till you save us, Lord? When when will your salvation come? When will you send the Savior? When will you set this evil world aright? How much longer must we wait in exile? And so they waited. The prophets spoke. They gave glimmers of hope, but eventually the prophets went silent as well. And Israel was conquered by the Greeks and then the Romans, and they waited. They waited, clinging to the promise of salvation, clinging to the prophecies of old, the promise of a Savior, the promise of the defeat of the serpent. Waiting. And one night, that all changed. We see this in Luke chapter 2. It's a night like any other. And yet Luke says this, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, just keeping watch over their flocks by night, the same thing they did every night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, who is Messiah the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In other words, he is here. The serpent-slaying, snake-crushing Son of God and Savior has come. What a strange thing. Here's the sign. Look for a baby. It's kind of a, it's, 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 it's an indication of the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah that he will come humbly. The Savior is here in the person of Jesus. God has become man. Even his name proclaims it. Jesus, Yeshua means God saves. That he, the he of Genesis 3.15 is now on the scene. The great cosmic battle has just gotten a lot more interesting. The days of the serpent are numbered. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. The arrival of our Savior and the fulfillment of God's promise to mankind. God had promised a Savior and God had provided one. Not only that, He provided His one and only Son. You see, the miracle of Christmas is the miracle of the incarnation. The miracle of the birth of Christ is that He is God in the flesh. God is a human. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And yet he lived his life perfectly. He lived in perfect righteousness. But the offspring of the serpent hated him. And so they delivered him up to be crucified. They wanted him dead and they were successful. They thought they could thwart God's plan by killing his savior. But they were wrong. Because as Jesus hung on the cross, God placed our sin upon his shoulders. Jesus bore the penalty for sin that we deserve. And so he gave up his life and died. But death could not hold him. Death could not hold our Savior because like Isaiah had prophesied before, Jesus broke free from the bonds of death. 
He swallowed up death and was resurrected from the dead in victory. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the glory and mystery of Christmas. The babe lying in the manger is the creator and sustainer of the universe. In him, Colossians tells us, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the prophet, the priest, the king, the teacher, the snake crusher, the author and finisher of our faith, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the sum of all the promises of God. In him are all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. Every good and perfect gift comes to us through him. In him we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You cannot think of a blessing outside of Christ. He is the guarantee of the promise. God did not spare his own son, and he won't hold anything back from his covenant children. Paul says, how shall he not with him, Christ, also freely give us all things? Jesus is the accomplisher and the confirmer of the promises. He has taken on our nature, taking his place as our representative before God, doing everything that Adam could not do and succeeding. He succeeds where Adam fails. And the point is this, he has come. He is the promised one. He accomplished everything he was sent to do. And now the way to God is open to sinful people like you and me. You see, when God threw Adam and Eve out of the garden, he placed the cherubim at the entrance to signify that the way to God was closed off to humans. But when Jesus died on the cross, the Gospels tell tell us that the veil in the temple, the curtain, was torn from top to bottom. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention this. The curtain was ripped all the way from the top to the bottom. And this curtain was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And do you remember what was pictured on the curtain? The cherubim. The cherubim. Because the cherubim signaled, no man shall enter here and live. But at Jesus' death, the cherubim and the curtain is ripped open, signifying that the way to God is now open. And that through the blood of Christ, we can now enter into the Holy of Holies. This once and for all signified that Satan's work in the garden, mankind's sin in the garden, has been reversed The way is open. Christ is victorious. The cherubim have been removed. The war is on and God has taken on flesh and become like us in every way except sin that he might bring us back to him and destroy the work of Satan. He has defeated sin, Satan, and death. Colossians says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. The call is this. The way of God is open for all who will trust in Christ as their Savior. Christ accomplished salvation, but you must believe. Salvation is yours if you would only believe in Christ. Salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ. 
But not only salvation. God didn't stop at forgiveness. No, you see, when Jesus took on flesh and became a human, he became our brother. Galatians 4 says it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, listen to this, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Not only has Christ provided salvation, he has provided this adoption for those who believe in Christ. You are now part of God's family, adopted sons and daughters of the king. You are a co-heir with Christ and will inherit in him all things. That is the glory and mystery of Christmas. Our Savior has come to us. He has saved and adopted all who will come to him in faith. He has looked on us in our sin and gave himself for us. One pastor said it this way. I saw this yesterday and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, I have given Christ countless reasons not to love me and not one of them has changed his mind. He won't forsake you. He bought you. And guess what? He is coming back. And in this way, we are like the Israelites awaiting the Savior. We too await the appearing of the Savior once again. And we cry out also, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come, thou long expected Jesus. You see, at his first coming, Jesus set in motion the final victory over Satan and the serpent. But at his return, he will finalize once and for all this victory. He will vanquish Satan. And the book of Revelation tells us, That Satan's end is in the lake of fire. How I long for that day. As we celebrate the birth of Christ, let us also remember and long for his return. As we celebrate his first advent, let us eagerly await his second advent. So for those of you here this morning who do not believe in Christ, I would urge you this Christmas season, come to Christ. Look to him in faith. Why dwell in the domain of darkness any longer? Behold the mystery of God in the flesh and marvel. Behold the Savior in the face of Jesus Christ. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to fulfill yourself. Stop running from God. Stop hiding and covering your sin. It won't work. Come to Christ. Come as you are in faith. You might think you've gone too far. You've done too much. You've strayed too far down the wrong path. But the truth is this. God became a man. God has promised salvation and he accomplished it by the birth, death, and resurrection of his son. No one is too far gone. Scripture tells us that Jesus came to save sinners. It is never too late. Because of your sin, you must trust in Christ today. Jesus is coming back. And he will save those who are his, and he will judge all those who reject him. So this Christmas season, let us remember these things. Remember your sin, remember your Savior, and remember his return. And let us rejoice in that. I want to end with the words of the early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus. And he said this, just capture this in your mind. He said this, Christ in the flesh... Rejoice with trembling and with joy, 
with trembling because of your sins, with joy because of your hope. I pray that this would be true of you this Christmas season. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great and merciful God. And for that we thank you, Father. You have promised salvation and you have accomplished it. Something we could never do. Through the blood of Christ, you have opened the way and brought us back to you, Father. And we thank you for that. Father, I pray this Christmas season, through all of the distractions, through all of the things that catch our eyes, that you would just drive down deep into our hearts the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, and who He is and what He has done for us. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who who is struggling with sin, Lord, that you would remind them of these truths. Bring them back to you this morning. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who who is feeling unworthy. Lord, let them look to Christ. Let them look on their Savior who is merciful and come to you in faith. Father, increase our faith this morning. Increase our faith this Christmas season. Enlarge our picture of who you are. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.